Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to another fantastic episode of uh, Mergers and Acquisitions Post-Merger Integration the 100 Days and Beyond podcast that uh, where we speak to those specific, those wonderful individuals that have spent their lives, that have, have, have dedicated themselves to a purpose, to what I believe often is a calling to a very unique space in, in the business uh, arena, which is that of, of a PMI or post-merger integration expert people that do the hard work, the, 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 the things behind the scenes to make, make deals or make uh, acquisitions or mergers or any kinds of joint ventures or even uh, at times it's to do with carving out and, and separations and so on. People that focus on, on becoming real experts at a broad range of skills, but being absolutely brilliant at specialist skills as well. So today we've got an absolutely brilliant guy, uh, Naresh Kumar, who's who's got 20 plus years experience. I'm going to quickly read his profile. I'm going to bring him online, but let me first say hello to, to Naresh. And uh, and and uh, there we go. Good morning, Naresh. How are you doing? Good morning, Good? Dudley. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, all, the, uh, all, 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 all's good, and um, and I think um, all the best is uh, on your side, really. I think um, if we just look at your profile, I'm going to quickly read it, and then we're going to go straight into it because I'd love to hear your background, how you got into this, and and it's quite fascinating actually. So let's quickly go into it. So Naresh is a freelance private equity ops specialist, which is which is interesting, and and I want you to sort of expand a bit on that. Uh, having worked in both buy side and sell side deal life cycle. So you've been on both ends of the spectrum. So you, you know what it's like to, to negotiate the price down and to be, be doing your due diligence. And then also on the, on the flip side to be being asked all the difficult questions around why is this a good deal and so on. Um, he has almost two decades of operating M&A and advisory experience through a permanent interim roles with Alvarez and Marcel, Advent, 3G Capital, Nomad, uh, SPAC or SPAC, uh, Accenture and Deloitte. I mean, that is, that's some significant names out there. And Naresh has, uh, has led design execution of transformative value creation plans. I mean that's a that's a, that's quite a mouthful, and and we need to expand a bit on that too. Transformative value creation plans, while concurrently providing interim leadership to corporates as accountable exec. Now, uh, this interim leadership role, we uh, this is something I'd love to flesh out a bit today as well. I mean, if you look at roles that you've had, sort of chief transformation officer, M and A director, finance director, chief procurement officer. I mean. That's that's quite a broad range. So he's a great blend of both operator and advisor, which makes him an attractive uh, uh, for a senior PMI role, post-merger integration role. So that broad base, that immense amount of experience, and also having been exposed to buy side, sell side. I mean, that makes it really special, Naresh. Welcome to the show today. And and uh, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get into this? <laughs> How did you get into such a complex environment? Yeah, th thanks, Dudley. Um, so I'm a global nomad, um, grew up in India, uh, did my undergrad, and by luck of stroke, um, I sort of came to UK as an aerospace engineer, uh, working with the likes of Airbus, Rolls-Royce, and BAE. You could say I used to have a sort of real job before I got into advisory. And so my first role was very much around designing uh, aerospace structures and quickly realized I'm a good engineer, but I love the excitement of managing complex supply chain issues and managing people and working with people. So I got involved in the 
supply chain side and moved to Dubai to set up a captive offshore center and grew that from sort of zero to uh, 2000 plus people managing suppliers uh, in Malaysia, Singapore, China, India, and managing clients on sort of uh, European front, Germany, France, and UK. Um, made some good tax-free uh, income, uh, and that made me more ambitious in terms of moving to US and getting my MBA from a business school called Purdue, which is very famous for uh, ops. Um, the timing was great, <laughs> and I think that's probably the start of MA journey. Uh, so I graduated at the peak of 09 recession. Um, it was a bit tricky back then, but in hindsight, amazing learning experience, networking with people, reaching out to people, alums, uh, working in different uh, aspects of business sphere. And that was about the start of my sort of private equity career. So I've been in private equity for about 15 years now, as you said, both sell side, buy side. And I started working with Accenture, m and advisory and uh, performance improvement practice. And because of 09 recession, uh, I think just about now we are heading into recession. So the dynamics are, or the drivers are quite similar. And of course, 09 was very deep recession. Hopefully this one won't be that deep but the focus on cost reduction and margin improvement was significant on the PE deal. And I worked on a Blackstone deal where my role was to essentially uh, outsource all the back office functions, your HR, finance, IT, procurement, um, and make sure the margin improvement comes through from a PE value creation perspective. Mm -hmm. And then I kept moving on to the PE circles, um moved to china for a year <laughs> again global nomad journey and and set up a low-cost country delivery center uh, serving mainly american and latin american clients buying capital goods and machinery uh, so and then moved to uk uh, and i have been in uk for the last 10 years uh, working in senior interim and operator roles yeah, that, that's that's magnificent, and and to have that cross culture, cross uh, geography <laughs> experience must must really expose you to many many things. I I want to just talk a little bit about that sort of pre ops. I, you do mention every now and then you do come up with some of the words you use are sort of the creation of value, etc. And uh, private equity um, is 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 known for for driving pretty hard in terms of uh, rapid value creation, if you like, and being able to, to try and uh, exit as, uh, on the best possible terms um, to the, to the, to, I think to the next private equity firm or whoever else they, they ends up being on the buy list. But, but there's, there, there's a, there's there are a few words. I just want to just sort of highlight and you talk about um, uh Private equity investors are prioritizing operational value creation with in-house or third-party talent. And is just just give us a bit of a bit about that sort of what is this private equity focused operations? What is just sort of just just expand on that for the for for the audience just to, so they can understand sort of what that PE ops actually means. De definitely. Um, so Dudley, you and I have a lot of experience in the m and space. And I think when we connected last, um, we both know that typically corporate m and uh, used to destroy value rather than create value. And uh, the senior execs uh, will focus on synergies, but then won't go harder and deeper into transforming the business and fundamentally changing the go-to-market value prop and underlying uh, operational um, business. Um, the, there are about 6,000 PE firms, uh, about 24,000 PE sponsored uh, companies, uh, either fully owned as a buyout or minority equity uh, owned by uh, PE firms. And during my last 15 years in the PE space, I have seen firsthand the rise of growth equity uh, ops value creation and and now e ESG and let me touch upon the ops value creation part which is your question um, the the depends on the investment thesis and I think as I said there are six thousand p 
plus p firms out there so mm -hmm. each has a different focus and uh, the type of deals they go after uh, and after 09 recession i think the capital has been cheap uh, which allowed uh, pe firms to the, the only way to differentiate among pe firm essentially became who can drive and transform the business uh, fundamentally in terms of taking the growth business to different markets uh, adding new product lines uh, filling the gap in the value chain through sort of bolt-on acquisitions uh, and in larger businesses, which are legacy businesses, uh, injecting new talent, new blood, but also fundamentally driving the transmission around future-proofing digital value creation. And, and that trend has been taking off, uh, I think, big time. I'm a byproduct of that trend, both uh, global deals, but also... Uh, more focus on ops value creation. And that has led to a lot of PE firms. There are two worlds in the PE firm, if you may say. One is the sort of finance background investment professionals who um, build the investment thesis and look for the right kind of deals uh, and monitor the portfolio or the fund. The others are sort of operating professionals like me. And mm -hmm. the last 10, 15 years, has seen significant buildup of in-house operating teams within large cap PE firms. The, the mid-market PE firms, and you could argue the mid-market is a pretty broad space. So you could have lower mid-market PE firms or the upper mid-market PE firms who primarily put capital into the management and bet on the management to deliver the deal value or investment thesis um, with some suite equity uh, along the way. And, and management knows only what they know. I think they know the market well, they know the business well, but there are so many drivers like working with the PE investors and uh, working on the digital value creation where you need professionals like me who can provide that expertise on as needed basis. And I think that's the mm. advent of interim or fractional operating partners where a lot of mid-market PE firms can't afford uh, the in-house operating team because the portfolio is not big, but they still want professionals, heavy hitters like me to challenge management uh, on their ambitions, aspirations, delivery plans, and come up with a problem statement, but more importantly, a solution to unlock the value. And I do sit on the boards of many mid-market PE portfolio companies to essentially help management take a step change in that value creation thesis. Yeah, I, lo I love that. I think I think that's absolutely uh, spots on. And and it, it is, it's, it's definitely a big shift uh, compared to sort of the 80s and 90s and the and the KKRs and, and where everything started. Eh? I mean, it's been quite a shift where now it's it's about value creation. It's about sustainability and and and, and, and also, I mean, PE firms have also evolved in terms of the type of people they bring on board, they, as, you, as you rightly say. And, and what, what's really interesting, I picked up an article and, and, uh, that, that you had written. And if I just look at the date quickly, um, I think it's fascinating. I think you posted it on LinkedIn. It published December 25, 2021. And you talk about the rise of the independent PE or private equity operating partners. And and how you how you split the the portfolio company management um, in-house private equity operating partners and obviously the advisors and that on the on the outside, I mean that that for me is is a is a really really good um, article, and and just some of the key the key things um, in that are are things like you've just mentioned now it's 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 almost like if I, if I have to sort of relate it and you did procurement and and so on and we. There was this big thing, and, and I, I don't know whether it's actually suiting us right now. We, we went to this uh, sort of manufacturing and stockholding of a just-in-time type of approach, if you if you like. You know, it's, it's yeah. almost like only when you need it do you buy it, and only when at the moment it's sold on the shelf do you replace it kind of thing. And it's almost like knowledge and knowledge workers, if you like, or professional services people 
I've become almost in that that way. Um, only only get people in when when you need them, and 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 for me this that's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a dichotomy because sometimes you need an ongoing support, but often the fund may not be able to afford or, or require a full a full team of hard hitters like like yourself. I mean, it's just a very interesting balance that private equity has to maintain these days. And, and in order for them to create the sustainability and the value creation and so on, you need the people with the experience. But, you, you know, you've got to call them in at the right time and you've got to call them in early enough. Don't wait until the last minute. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've had a few of those where you've got in a, maybe a little bit late, uh, you know, late and, and, and you have to quickly, quickly be able to adapt. To, a, a, to to some quick quick demands. I mean, is that is that true? Is that is that realistic? It, it is. So uh, I think, as you said, uh, the the PE is about forty year old industry, and I'll be turning forty soon. So I think PE almost about started when um, <laughs> I was born, and and it's been going through multiple transitions. You could say um, it's sort of PE four point version. Uh, where the initial PE deals were largely leveraged deals where the 80% or 90% would be debt and 10%, 20% would be equity. Uh, and provided debt is cheap, uh, you can deliver alpha returns on your uh, equity um, through purely cost-cutting margin improvement. And given a lot of corporates mm. were quite fat back then, uh, you could take out very simple quick wins around changing travel policy, no private jets, um, going harder and deeper on sort of GNA, headcount reduction, uh, building shared services, offshoring, nearshoring, et cetera. And, and that got PE firms to about 20, 30, 40% IRR, um, about three to four money on money multiplier. Which was um, pretty damn good, wasn't it? Which was pretty good, actually. And I think that that probably led to the rise of the, the Blackstone on KKR as they are of today into multi-asset, multi-sector, alternative investment managers. Uh, but as a consequence, finding the right deal became harder. And if providing capital was the only thing you could do, then there were other alternatives to the sellers. Uh, so, um, I, I have this playbook which I presented to uh, Wharton a few years back around um, how the PE playbook has evolved over the last 40 years. And there are different versions of it out there, uh, but I have my unique one. And in a very simple um, language, uh, if you can project, I think it's called sort of MA and operator led playbook. It's all about opening the gap and closing the gap and previously operational diligence was not a big focus for the PE firms uh, it was all about we want to buy this asset for the strategic reasons and we'll figure out how do we deliver the value but now given PE firms work a fine balancing act of each asset goes through an auction process so if you underbid, then you will lose the asset or you won't get the asset. If you overbid, then <laughs> you might put the IRR at risk. And so it's a fine balancing act. And the only way to unlock or uh, solve that challenge is doing a proper diligence on the target asset with senior experienced professionals like me. You won't get the full data because you know data is always a constraint but what can you pragmatically assess and build a value creation thesis on what's the value creation upside and also the red flags on this specific deal yeah so the open the gap is all about uh, in the lack of absolute management access and uh, company data can we come up with a margin improvement thesis yeah and build a value creation plan, which will be detailed out as the deal progresses through sort mm. of signing and sign to close and sort of first 200 days to a robust portfolio of projects, which can be delivered. And I think you and I both know change is easier said than done. 
I think a lot of transformation is about emotional journey. Yeah. Mm. How do you build in people who have got war scars, who have learned from the large cap PE firms, have been there along with the management and can bring those lessons, best practices, but more importantly, apply them to make that change real in terms of financial impact and in terms of uh, driving people and change agenda. I think closing the gap is all about working with the management to make sure management believes in it and you work side by side with the C-suite, C-suite minus one and then the wider workforce to make that change happen and work towards the same objective, which is the exit value for the C-suite management and the PE investors. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I like your analogy of open the gap, close the gap, open the gap, close the gap. It's almost like... I need a glass of water. I open the tap. I close the tap. When I've get, <laughs> yeah. got a, my glasses full, but it's that kind. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's actually, it, it's quite an interesting way of looking at it. And and I think what 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 you've done, Naresh, is you've become, I think, quite a thought leader in that space. Where we, we with your analytical mind and your and and your ability to to review things in an analytical way, not just in a detail, but also be able to look at it from a from a broad sort of point of view i mean if i if i go through the articles and things that you've written i just want to sort of have a look at pe now you said 40 years and you're 40 years old and and uh what's the next 40 years look like i mean if i if i say okay where are we and where are we going kind of thing yeah i think it's it's interesting and uh, i wish i had this um uh, ball which could tell and I would you and I would be billionaire if we knew where the market is going. Uh, I think it's definitely challenging. Um, the, if you look at the last 24, 36 months uh, during COVID and post-COVID, the m and markets have been hot largely because there was so much capital out there uh, and, and both corporate and P equity uh, deal activity uh, was strong. And mm-hmm. my sense is the m and corporates would slow down. I think there will still be deals in the corporate space where uh, you're buying companies for a specific gap, like, you know, pharma companies buying uh, startups or growth uh, firms which have got formulas or new drugs or new med tech devices. Um, Otherwise, you would not see these large mega deals which are purely anchored around putting two plus two together and hoping five comes through. Um, in the PE space, I think the party will continue. Uh, I think PE has been in this journey where people have said, is this the, the end of the PE? And I think PE has come back stronger because they have been able to re-pivot uh, as required. And you, you see a lot of smart, uh, hungry people who can read the market and can re-pivot accordingly. My sense is and the there's so much trillion plus dry powder out there with the PE funds and they need to deploy it Uh, and the current market uncertainty because of Ukraine war or inflation is making the valuations more challenging at the same time there are some tailwinds as well in terms of valuations will come down the last 36 months have been sky high valuations and people like me who have been operators wonder how would you deliver the the multiple and sort of returns on those deals? Uh, so I think it's all uh, in the positive direction. Uh, the growth equity will slow down because as we head into recession, the cost restructuring and margin management becomes more mm. important. Uh, and then the debt, a uh, lot of big banks uh, will pull back from the debt because there's so much uncertainty. But the private debt, which the PE firms have as an arm, again, will see a significant uh, rise and the fund will be deployed um, across multiple classes with probably mm-hmm. PE coming down a little bit, but then private debt and real estate rising. Yeah, I think real estate's one of those weird ones where um, I'm, I'm, you never, you're never sure how to read it because it's, it, it, you never, you know, for me, it's, it's a lot more difficult than, than, than getting into a business environment because I can sort of read a business environment better than, than property because property shifts according to, you know, a, a, a demand cycle and, and, and so on. But if you look at business, 
what I mean, what I'm seeing across the private equity landscape, you must maybe just confirm uh, your experience on this. But what I'm seeing is that that deals are becoming um, there are more deals, but the lower quality. There are more people trying to exit. For instance, I mean, they talk about the baby boomers um, and so on, and they talk about, especially in the mid market, I'd say, and in this whole consolidation space, you got fintech and all these tech-based <clears throat> uh, companies that have burnt themselves um, into the ground sometimes when they run out of cash, and now there's not that much cash available. Uh, they're wanting to move up um, in terms of uh, their value creation. And then you look at the more legacy um, businesses as well, where they're having to reinvent themselves and to bring in um, additional things that they didn't have to consider in, in the past. But if you have a look at, at the, amount of, the amount of work once an acquisition takes place today, I think has increased. That's my, that's my view. Correct. The quality of the assets have dropped. The price or price perception of prices has has gone a little bit wrong. I think. I think uh, the the sellers want too much for what they actually have, because the market is shifting. And I think you know, if I go to a simple Peter Drucker thing that I use from time to time, which is, you know, the the, the purpose of any business is the acquisition of customers and the fulfillment of their needs. You know, I mean, we talk all about all these great mathematical calculations and all the theories and that. But at the end of the day, if the customer is not buying or they're not following the trends of the market, you know, you could bring in the best laid plans. Customers stop buying from you. And next thing you look, you actually don't have a business anymore or or, or there's a competitor that's taking away market share. I mean, I, I just look at something like I mentioned this once before in a previous episode where if you look at Netflix, for instance, how they losing subscribers. I mean, at one stage, I mean, they were skyrocketing. Um, they had, I think, they had too much content, and you could probably debate why they've why they've gone down. But, but in fact, they have non-linear competition, and this I think is one thing that's now become more prevalent and more dangerous for for investment as well. Is you have non-linear competition. So something like a TikTok has taken off. And 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 so I, I one I saw an article where someone did a correlation between the the drop in user numbers and the increase in user numbers, drop of Netflix and the increase in user user numbers of TikTok as an as an example. Yeah. So so when you're looking at where things are going, I mean that's that's really fascinating that what what, what you say there. And then, and and I think yes, equity. Uh, there's a lot of dry powder that needs to be used. But I think there's there's a bit of a conundrum I think for private equity firms. I don't know how do you how do you feel? I think they're sitting between a rock and a hard place for 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 many of them. I think it depends on the the sector. And um, as I said, I think each PE firm will have a unique investment thesis and the sectors or the assets they go after. Uh, one thing is for sure that the notion of finding a proprietary deal, sort of you know baby boomers retiring and the next generation not willing to take over and the founders trying to cash out or exit, I think is a phenomena. I think has been a phenomena in the sort of um, Western Europe uh, and US and P firms have essentially built the portfolio on the back of that. But as a consequence, the sell side has become much severe as well. So the moment a asset comes on the market, it goes to an auction process. An auction, by virtue of the process, jacks up the price. Yeah, the it's just the inherent nature of the competition where you pay more in the heat of the moment. You get hungry for the deal and you want to actually get it, and you lose the discipline. In my experience, I think a lot of PE firms actually are very disciplined where the investment committee will put guardrails in place and say that's the max we will pay yeah and if it doesn't work out we'll work out and that's where the operational diligence and the integrated diligence between making sure the valuation upside is baked into the business plans and the fdd is quite important because uh, typically a lot of those diligences have been done in silos um, uh, so you, you want to make sure there's a coherent equity story and that the story is being played out in the investment committee, but then investment committee can deep dive 
and can mm-hmm. go into the nut and bolts of how actually it will become real and what are the red flags and how will course correct yeah because we both know i think plan is changes literally the day after we build the plan especially in the mna space yeah so how quickly you can repeat and course correct and that's where this whole playbook around open the gap close the gap the target is the target uh, exit value is the end goal post if there are hiccups along the way then how can you change and mm-hmm. find opportunities elsewhere and variance or tracking monitoring i think is quite critical so a lot of pe firms uh, i think have started using this approach called transformation management office because l- let's be clear i think the pmo is good but as we know a lot of transformative disruptive change is a function of being able to challenge people mm-hmm. uh, in the core sacred cause but also once they agree you should be able to provide the right support yeah so the pmo i think is good in terms of building the mi machinery kpa machinery putting the governance in place running the cadence of governance where it falls short is challenging the key stakeholders uh, with gravitas so that's where people like me come along where i have been in advisory but i've had senior operator roles and i've got my own war scars and battle scars so the perception of talking to advisors who will give you theoretical solutions which don't have legs and arms and they don't know your sector they don't know your company i think if you blend those two things together where i work in the portfolio companies where i understand the sector yeah so then the discussion quickly becomes about no one is teaching or no one is learning it's all about here we are here we need to go how do we get there and what's the investment case and what's the cost mm-hmm. business case uh, and how do we deliver it um, while working collaboratively yeah so this transmission management office i think has been pivotal and central to pe firms being able to realize the value of transformative mna like in platform deals but also bolt on buy build integrate and transform deals because that discipline of a senior c suite stakeholder who is the gatekeeper of making sure the value creation plan becomes real and are the bridge between the investors and the c suite who are more focused on bau delivery Mm-hmm. and they sort of work collaboratively and the second thing i would say is a lot of ctos are like me are bilingual where the the most of the p portfolio companies are mid sized companies who never had a p sponsor and working with the p investor i think is a totally different board game so uh, i can speak p language i can also speak the management language and how can you help both of those parties to find a common ground mm-hmm. and make that change actually happen the last point i'll say is i think to your point uh, there are always opportunities in distressed times so the special situations deal i think are on the rise and i think has been on the rise so if you talk about covid uh, when the covid was hitting i think i was working on a um, pe deal in, in midlands and um there was always this discussion uh, around would the pe party keep going or would they uh, have to switch from growth equity which was the norm for the last 3 years uh, to more distressed mna yeah uh, and we both know that never happened like everyone was expecting sort of restructuring bankruptcies to come along because of covid but because of follow schemes the the sort of you know government uh, 0% interest lending schemes there are a lot of zombie companies out there where business model is not actually working uh, but they have been sort of floating around purely because of macroeconomic um, climate those deals i think will become a target for uh, distressed pe buyers like apollo like central bridge etc the second thing is that distress is also 
facing the corporates who have to focus on what's the core portfolio and what sort of the non-core. So a lot of corporates across the sectors, I think, have been offloading uh, orphan brands or non-loved childs to the PE firms where PE firms can show them the focus attention required, which the larger portfolio of a corporate might not. So the carve-outs on the rise. And I think it's those macroeconomic and PE-specific drivers where you have to look harder and you have to look at the assets where you can create value. And I think carve-out is becoming a bigger and bigger uh, PE uh, theme. Yeah, and, and I, I totally agree with you. I think carve out will ever we we are we are seeing the rise of the carve out specialist. We're seeing the rise of the um, of the separation specialist um, in terms of company breakups for regulatory or other other reasons, um, or just rejuven, rejuvenation. I mean, sometimes the company can just get too big, and it starts be, it starts becoming more and more cumbersome, and it it, it starts to lose market share where sometimes just splitting it out and just giving a, a refocus is, is are the, these are great business opportunities for private equity firms. I want to just, just sort of go into, just use that as a segue into the next sort of point. And that is the, uh, what we call, I think you mentioned it was the decoding PE value creation. So tell me a bit about what, what do you mean by decoding? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting uh, concept. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think I, interestingly, I think, let me just tell you a little bit of my career journey and story and how I sort of got into uh, PE operating space as an interim operator or advisor. So um, I worked with um, Deloitte Atkins Accenture as an advisor for about 12 years, uh, selling multi-million, multi-billion outsourcing deals, working with the sort of PE clients in on diligences and performance improvement. And the uh, towards the latter end of my Accenture career, I worked with a unique PE firm. Uh, I think they, they take a much longer view of the investment horizon. So typically, PE firms will have a deal uh, holding period of, sort of five to seven years, depending upon when the right opportunity to sell comes along. But they uh, took sort of 20, 30 years horizon. And I worked with uh, them, uh, two large portfolio companies uh, on doing multiple carve outs, and uh, multiple uh, bolt on um, acquisitions and integrating them. And they had a pretty disciplined um, m PE playbook, which was no exception, we do this when we buy a company and they were sectoral focused in CPG. Um, so that's where uh, essentially I learned and uh, applied and sold zero-based restructuring, zero-based transformation to uh, portfolio companies. Uh, but that worked in 10 billion plus portfolio companies. Uh, the challenge was when you move it to the mid-market portfolio companies, simply they are not that fat. Yeah, uh, the and to run an exercise like zero-based. Uh, is counterintuitive where you take people away from their core jobs. Uh, so you have to find a pragmatic balance of what creates value and what is simply meaningless work, uh, if I may say that. Uh, so when I left Accenture to follow a client of mine uh, who became the sort of C-suite of a buy-build uh, platform, um, the, the challenge was uh, we have been PE on for about 10 plus years. Uh, the, uh, definitely, there are always opportunities to reduce cost, uh, but we don't want to destroy the culture by going to the bare bones. We want to invest in the people agenda, talent, training, digital. Um, and that led me to focus on what actually drives value. And I think that comes to your point around decoding. Yeah, What is the core element of value creation? And it is this. I think it's collaborative uh, transformation across different business units, different markets, uh, and different functions. So we built this program ground up using, and I was a contractor, uh, where you start with a heavy hitter like me, 
you built the case for change, you build the business case for standing up the transformation, but then you roll it out on an ROI basis. Uh, start with the uh, easy, quick wins like procurement, where typically, and I've done chief procurement officer roles, uh, where the typically procurement expectation is you challenge suppliers, you bang the table and hopefully suppliers will get scared and will give you some savings. Uh, and that, that trick has worked for the large companies. When you are a mid-market company, your buying power is not that significant, let's be honest, yeah? So your suppliers in some cases have more power. So how do you actually drive value from procurement beyond transactional buying activity? And the question becomes, uh, typically 50% plus value comes from demand management. We're getting your house in order, um, optimizing specs, rationalizing specs across different markets, different product units, which allows you to volume pool and go to the market with a much bigger buying power and opportunity to get a much bigger discount and rebates. So that became the launch pad of driving transmission. And when senior execs saw the savings come through, we reinvested those savings into where they wanted to drive change. So it wasn't here the cost out, it goes into the margin and we, we need more savings from you because that becomes a draining exercise of as a budget holder, there's nothing in it for me, yeah? So again, it comes to how do you bring a team or build a change case around it? I went, must have gone to the, like in my 24 um, months contract period, I must have gone to about 20 plus exec board meetings, purely from the perspective of you want to be in the mind and you want to hear what's keeping them awake. How can you uh, provide them a solution and be on their side? Yeah. And, and when they see, then magic happens. Uh, I think the challenge with the advisory firms is they are so expensive that you can't afford them for a 24-month period. Uh, yeah, and and you have other agendas like selling on, you know, cross-selling, pushing things, which management doesn't typically want because they want to focus you on solving that specific challenge right here, right now. And once you are done with that, then they will themselves tell you let's do xyz together yeah so the three month contract became sort of 24 month month contract and if you are committed hard working high work ethics then you and i will always find opportunities to do bigger and better things hmm. and, and i build the team ground up got bigger budget uh, bigger resources uh, i think it comes to uh, your point around decoding so decoding is can you think about alternative ways which might work in a mid-sized company's way, which is primarily 90% of the P-portfolio companies? Yeah, let's be honest. A lot of uh, large corporates get premium pricing and they are uh, not that value creative for the P firms. There are quite a few out there, but majority of the portfolio companies are mid-sized, sort of 100 million uh, revenue to about 2 billion plus revenue. Um, the second thing I would say is when the PE firm takes over, and I've seen this play out multiple times uh, in my business services uh, sectoral focus, business services, and in most cases or in all cases, I think businesses are about people. Yeah, People are the core assets. If you lose people, then you lose revenue, you lose profit. But when a PE firm takes over, that communication story somehow gets lost of what was the investment thesis, why did we buy, how we are going to invest into uh, closing the gaps around uh, few uh, value chain gaps, etc. Uh, how we will enable people, how we'll invest into the digital agenda to make workforce more productive, effective, etc. Uh, and there's a typically what I call J-curve, where the performance dips then improve and i think it's you must have seen that play out and the key to making that dip shallow compared to very deep is building 
bridges and man bringing management on that journey where they might have nervousness they might be scared around what the new world looks like uh, so we uh, my team and i have worked with uh, to essentially uh, lay out this thesis where where we will go deeper and where we pull back and and roll out the change in a pragmatic roi led manner and this is where the interim transmission officers and transmission directors are quite critical where they can bring in the confidence of we have naresh on your side who has done this multiple times and you are in safe pair of hands but we won't push cookie cutter approach we will listen and we will work with you to deliver the change and valuation plan uh, hopefully that answers your question in a long winded way no no it's actually a very good answer and and i want to i want to sort of use that as a as a as a segue because i think i think when we start talking interim and and uh i mean i think you raise the point of um this this rise of the interim the rise of of advisors and and so on and and these these heavy hitters that can go in to an organization without having to bring sort of massive teams of people but but rather bring in people on a part time and 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 uh, a very specific purpose and and I want to just talk a little around this new word that that's sort of popping up from time to time in various spaces but um the word fractional sort of the word fractional operating partner or fractional um uh, i don't know pmi practitioner i mean it's coming up all more and more and more where where people are saying we don't need someone full time but we do need a really really strong leader that's got masses of experience a good network and can bring in the right people at the right time without us having to build out this uh, this um big sort of I, I think you called it a pmo which is the project management office some people build out the integration management office which can also be quite expensive but maybe there's a there's a variation to 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 that theme i i want to just sort of go into that the space what the difference is between interim fractional full time contract i mean there're quite a few you know <laughs> words floating around what what does all that mean i mean let, let's sort of break it down into into sort of for the audience sort of I, I mean, let's say, for instance, I'm a, I, I run a, a private equity firm. I'm looking for some, some resource. I mean, it, it's now becoming quite difficult to find exactly the right person, and everything goes to network, and you have your default. And I think there's a big danger of that in private equity space is that you have the people you always use, and you become quite... I don't want to. Uh, I want them to sound, sound sound bad, but I think it becomes quite stale often, in that you're using the same people, not bringing in fresh new ideas. You're not bringing in the right kind of people at the right time, especially if you're building out your portfolio, and and a lot of your resources could be stretched. I mean, we talk around interim and fractional and and contracts and and the pros and cons, and just just sort of. Expand a bit on that in terms of sort of where things, where you think things are, and where do you think they're going in in that space? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, Dudley. And I think yes, there are different versions out there, and maybe having consistent language and taxonomy would help both practitioners and the buyers, like PE firms. Uh, I think in terms of let's look at the PE ops ecosystem, which you touched upon, where. if the ops value creation is critical to core investment thesis there might be another elements of investment thesis around um, sort of uh, growth equity uh, buy and build uh, etc but from purely organic growth and margin improvement perspective uh, the p ops landscape is there's a management yeah and depending upon which p from you talk about some have mature in house operating capability where they can intervene uh, and support management on specific valuation themes around commercial excellence around operation excellence around closing moving factories etc 
But in the mid-market PE space, where fractional operating partner is on the rise, is typically the portfolio is not big, as we said, uh, where they can't afford uh, the payroll carry-based operating partners like their large cap PE counterparts can. Yeah, But they still want to provide a helping hand to the portfolio companies. And again, if you think about the auction process, uh, earlier, the capital was the differentiator, the LBO leverage that was a differentiator. Now it's not. So if you are a PE player, you cannot do deals without focusing on operational value creation and differentiating on that part. So that's where I think they look up to people like me, where I've got a real good friend. He's based in the US. We went to B school together and he has built this fascinating uh, business uh, around sort of uh, 50, 60 million uh, plus revenue. They raised about $100 million uh, in uh, growth equity investments. And their business, the reason I mentioned them, uh, they are called Onboard, but the reason I mentioned them is uh, they have been working quite a lot with the mid-market PE firms to drive that deal thesis agenda by enabling effective and efficient boards because essentially it's the chairman and the board where PE firms have seat are responsible for uh, or accountable for making sure the investment thesis becomes real yeah the second so um the second thing i would say is your point around sort of blurring line between interim uh, and the transformation a lot of mature PE firms, and I've worked with quite a few, uh, like Advent, uh, like 3G Capital, like Blackstone, where they have seen that sometime your integration management office, separation management office, can pretty much become ivory towers. They run in silos. Uh, they work like program management office, where they're doing all the right things required, but they have lost the connection with the business. Is the business working? Is the performance dipping? How do we correlate? They have a list of activities and they go after that list of activities and keep themselves busy. So the roles I have done is are a blend of, I think this is where sort of two-in-one operator and advisor is taking off, where 30% of your headspace is as a senior exec or as a chief transmission officer is focused on providing leadership to the BAU teams. Actually, you get to see that is the transformation coming through or not. And if not, then you change gears. Yeah. Uh, but because you have that role that you are responsible and accountable for PL management and you're accountable for EBITDA margin and delivering business plan and budget, you are a lot more connected and savvy about where do you focus on transformation. If it's a five-year plan, I would go after it because it's a long value creation story, but I also will balance on what needs to happen in next three months, six months to build that momentum. Yeah. So I've done two or three roles like that where the PE firm brought me in as a operating partner, primarily responsible for getting the value creation transformation management office off the ground, um, building the team ground up, and working with the PE firm, investors, and the management on the board, but also having a exec role as a chief transmission officer, as a finance director, to make sure that transformation is actually happening. And I think this is where the interim word is quite critical. And you want to have those roles as a PE firm because it makes your program management or transformation quite grounded and plugged into the reality. And there are no egos in the PE boardrooms. Uh, the age is significantly different compared to the board of a publicly listed company. So I have uh, sort of fractional operating partner board roles in few PE firms where they are looking for people who can bring in that differentiator, different viewpoint and i think because of my global experience because of my sectoral experience i bring in a unique perspective and i think pe firms want that and and a lot of mid-market pe firms are looking up to professionals like me who can help them 
navigate the operation value creation journey without making the mistakes which their big p counterparts have made in the in the past and i think i i sort of work with them to make sure uh, we don't make one on one mistakes but also learn and be ambitious on what lies out there and be bold and ambitious yeah and i think i think you 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 said um earlier and I, and and it's a very very valid point um, a large entities have a lot more fat if you like to cut but mid market entities are already running incredibly lean um they already run at um at max but need optimization and tweaking and and so on and that takes a different kind of skill set than a than a sort of cutting off the the fat and just just getting a few uh, you know a few a few brownie points by <laughs> by just doing a bit of cost cutting and and i think with the with the with the with the with the movement in market now with the with the the requirement for world class operators you know people that have got global experience but also having that sort of uh, you know i i'd love to relate it to sport and sport is having that match fitness having yeah. the 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 you know having the on field experience the match fitness of being able to get on, get into a game and and play because you are conditioned and you're prepared but you also in the game um it's different to taking a really well experienced person but that's been on the shelf for a while you know that person has to sort of re regather themselves and refocus i mean if i think about your playbooks and i think about um the broad experience and and also the way that you immerse yourself in in a particular uh, project or if it's a fractional role i'm guessing you'll take on one or two clients at a time let's just quickly shift into that because we we running we we running close to the hour and i just want to make sure that we we understand sort of let's just go into Naresh, you know, let's talk about sort of you, but personally, and and sort of what's your company? What do you do? What kind of kind of clients are you looking for? You know, how do you maintain sort of work life balance? And so, how do you how do you stay make it keep it real? If that's if that's the word to, to say, I mean, how do you how do you stay human in in such a such a tough environment? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. I think PE is hard work, and I think PMI and M and A is hard work. Yeah, so trying to find work life balance on a daily basis i think it is not possible and if you want that then you shouldn't be in the this space and what is possible is there'll be peaks and troughs and where if you're working on a diligence it will be 24/7 and i've been on sort of led and supported multiple diligence at the same time if one is not enough um so my philosophy is be an authentic leader i think show yourself you know be candid uh, who you are uh, with the uh, client and with the um, stakeholders and with the colleagues respect the boundaries but lay out the boundaries where you know if i'm putting kids to bed around sort of 8 pm then i will be online but 8 to 9 is not possible uh, and then be flexible I, i think adaptable and agility i think is the name of the game where uh there's no one way to solve a problem and that's where diversity inclusion different viewpoint challenging conscious biases looking at things from a different viewpoint really helps and i love i think the company of people who are sort of years ahead of me in the journey where you know how did they raise children how did they go through this cycle where you are trying to rise you know grow in your career but also have a young family versus young folks uh, who were logged in into a sort of um one room and flat and not being able to work out um then i think you have to get a perspective uh, sometime we all live in our minds at, at from time to time so just going out there in the green nature i live in bromley it's very green and leafy i love bike um so just putting some social time with colleagues and clients to get to know them to see who they are, really are what's on their mind it's not always about work i think the teams and zoom call are quite disingenuous where you just look at one person and you get to the agenda right away so i always you know go out for a after work social pint with colleagues uh, 
even if it's for half an hour, one point, I think it makes a big difference. And then lastly, you know, um, share your story. Uh, I think I uh, lost my dad uh, when I was in the U.S. And, and that was a tough time for me. Uh, I did not share that with anyone, but I think people appreciate the journey you have been on. And hopefully you can help somebody else who might go through the same journey, but avoid the same pain. Yeah, and 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 I think that um, that whole, I mean, that 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 is a great story, and I and I think many many people forget the human element, and I and your point to talking to a screen all day long, um, you know, you have thirty minutes, you have twenty minutes, you have forty five minutes, whatever the time of the meeting is, and if you don't get that done, the next one starts, and then I think. We've we've got into this new new cycle, if you like, where in the past we might have had three or four meetings, longer meetings, um, potentially reaching um, different decisions because you're able to connect on a human level. Now everything's being narrowed down to you know you've got 20 minutes. You know what do you, what do you want to say? And then I've got to jump to another call, you know, regardless of whether you finished or not <laughs> um, yeah. with what you need to share. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you're experiencing that, but also just from that human connection point of view. Uh, I think you're spot on. A um, lot of change. Uh, I think we discussed it and said it a few times is emotional. Yeah. And you can't solve an emotional problem with content. If you get to the content right away, I might agree with the content, but I might not have bandwidth or willingness mm. to do that as the timelines you want, the pace you want, etc. So until unless you connect with others on a human level basis, you would miss out on a lot of things where you can make someone your ally versus for. Mm. Absolutely spot on. And uh we, we've we've come to the end of, of the of the episode and so on. I just want to Naresh, let's say thank you very, very much. How can people get hold of you? Um they let's say they've watched the episode and they say, okay, you know, Naresh is a guy to speak to. Um, we want to have a chat to him. How do they get hold of you? Uh I think as a freelance P of specialist, I publish my thought leadership POVs and uh, work regularly. Uh, so I think LinkedIn is the best way to get in touch. Uh, and then um, as and when the time permits, we can move the chat from LinkedIn to uh, email or phone to find slots in the diaries and always happy to network with people and, and sort of find and co-create new opportunities. Yeah. And, and, and it seems like you also enjoy having a pint with people as well from time I do, to time. I do. <laughs> Especially <laughs> in this weather, right? <laughs> exactly right. Um, Naresh, thank you very much. Uh, please stay on the lines. I'm going to say thank you to our, our guests and, um, and, and, and those who attend, and then I'll be back. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Thank you very much for, for joining us today and on a, another wonderful episode of, uh, of 100 Days and Beyond, the podcast dedicated to, to those unique and special individuals that I believe makes such a difference in in the world that 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 we live. Those that that are able to to deal with the rough and tumble. I almost want to say the UFC, the the multi martial art uh, sport. <laughs> I don't know if you like that or not, but um, I think the the idea is to uh, is is to be uh, cognizant that these people exist and they're human beings and they are authentic and they're real and they have life experiences and the rest shared bodies his father, et cetera. And, and I think I think it's important to understand that that people deal with people. People don't deal with businesses. And I think that's really part of the whole approach. Yes, everything can be narrowed down into financial statements, due diligence uh, papers, data rooms, and, and all that type of thing. And then post-merge post or post-acquisition, uh, you know, you could pretty much have a checklist and a playbook and a this and that. But really, there's people involved, and 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 there's there's impact on people's lives. I I think with the kind of individuals that we interview in our on our episodes, these people make impact not just in the business environment. If you think of a strong economy, a strong economy feeds people. A strong economy pays people's salaries and is able to provide services and so on, and pay all the normal taxes, etc., and and provide. Um, for the communities within which they operate. 
either locally or globally. But I think uh, within the post-merger, post-acquisition uh, uh, integration space and the whole M&A environment, I think the, the 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 value that these that these individuals create is is significant and should be recognised. That's what this channel is all about. Hundred Days and Beyond, um, Hundred Days and Beyond You're welcome to go there and listen to some of the other episodes and our YouTube channel and and any other places that we appear. Thank you very much for joining us again today. Um, if you if you can and want to, please subscribe to our channel so you can be notified of any any follow up uh, episodes. And please go and binge watch a few of the past. Have a super day. We'll chat to you soon. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no-obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website skillfulpursuit.com.